Thank you very much, Susanna, and thank you to both of you for organising this um, so far very inspiring series, which we're very um, pleased to contribute to. Uh, our world is increasingly characterised by urbanisation, transnational mobility and diasporic globalised connections. Yet these connections are experienced and maintained in particular places and often in the most mundane ways in everyday lives in urban contexts. Alain Touraine has posed that one of the most salient questions for the 21st century is how do we live with difference? And so our presentation today offers reflections on a small collaborative pilot project in progress in Elephant and Castle, a super diverse inner city area of London in which we're asking exactly this question, how do we live with difference? with a particular interest in welfare provision and welfare encounters. Uh, we're still at a very early stage, so we have uh, many more questions and answers, and we're very much looking forward to your comments, both on conceptual and methodological issues or any other uh, issues that you would like to uh, discuss with us. So uh, the presentation is going to be, I'll first say a little bit about Elephant and Castle, and then move on to talk about the questions we're interested in exploring in the project. And then Ben and Hiranthi will take over to discuss Elephant and Castle in more detail and to present our still uh, emergent um, ethnographic data, if we can even call it ethnographic uh, yet. So, uh, this, this, okay, all right, so... A little bit of background on why we're interested in uh, Elephant and Castle. This is a, a map of uh, local councils in uh, London. Uh, Elephant and Castle is uh, part of Southwark Council, just south of the river, um, but it's not its uh, own administrative unit. As you can see, it's very close to the city of London, just south of it. Um, now, parts of inner London have been uh, quite intensely described in social science literature, uh, some of us um, in the research team organised a conference in Oxford in 2011 and we had four or more abstract submissions dealing with Hackney in East London. As one of the presenters said, you can't throw a stone in Hackney without hitting an ethnographer. And so we wanted to look somewhere else um, and it doesn't look like much has been done on Elephant and Castle. Um, also, we were keen to look at a very mundane, non-spectacular place not somewhere that evoked images of anything especially exotic, like, for example, Tower Hamlets, or of gang violence, or of other perceived uh, urban ills. We wanted to go somewhere pretty mundane and everyday. And we were also keen to avoid a reproduction of classic ethnographic tropes of the village in the city. So um, this map um, of transport connections in Elephant and Castle is very suggestive of a set of reasons why we've chosen uh, this area. Its representation of, of elephant shows it as a space of flows, a traffic junction, an intersection. Um, and at the centre of elephant, so the centre of the little uh, square here, is a fairly ugly but functional shopping centre which has been under threat of redevelopment for many years. And for us, all these aspects of elephant made it a very interesting site for looking at diversity and issues of uh, welfare provision. It's not an ethnic community, it's not an inner city neighbourhood, as in much research on the lived experience of diversity. Rather, it's an area 
uh, around a major roundabout, a place of flows whose centrifugal force pushes people out more than it draws them in, and it's a shopping centre forever about to be closed down due to intense development pressure. And so this theme of intersections embodied by the roundabout is uh, very central to our research and we're hoping it'll help us displace identitarian or methodologically ethnicist approaches to multiculturalism, multilingualism, tolerance, intolerance and identity, which we believe have been made anachronistic by superdiverse urbanism. So our premise is that a zone such as this, exemplary of new patterns of metropolitan diversity in the UK and globally, can be seen as a contact zone, a space of translation. And in our research, we explore if we can talk about the emergence of a vernacular culture of translation in the context of superdiversity. Okay, so... So we wanted to take a bottom-up approach to the question of how we live with difference, which therefore also entails an openness to what differences make a difference in this context. We don't want to assume a priori that we know the answer to this question, or indeed that there is one answer to the question. We expect that the answer is contextual, uh, contingent, that it changes over time, and that it's not the same for everyone in the area. We expect that differences of age, class, faith and socioeconomic status will intersect and interact in different ways for different people. Uh, so as I said, we have a particular interest in welfare provision and welfare encounters, that is encounters between local residents and street-level uh, bureaucrats. Um, that's a, a term introduced by Lipsky, referring to the frontline service workers who deliver services, including health professionals, doctors, nurses, health visitors, teachers, housing association workers, care workers. And so we believe in encounters between local residents and street-level bureaucrats. Um, or we see these encounters as uh, an instance in which local residents will experience the state on an everyday level, where negotiations over who and what constitutes the good citizen are likely to take place. In the current context of increasing diversification of diversity, urban change and welfare restructuring, we anticipate that implicit background narratives and understandings will be made explicit in these encounters and that therefore they will provide a productive arena in which to understand how and when differences that make a difference are articulated, produced and embodied. It's also a, a, sort of a pragmatic uh, idea that it would help us actually gain access uh, to people in the area, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, later. Uh, so we also want to explore the question of difference at different stages of the life course from birth to old age. And accordingly, the project has four strands, namely maternity services, schools, housing, and elderly social care. So the three of us are part of a larger team. Each of us has responsibility for one strand. Haranthi is looking at maternity. I'm looking at schooling. Ben is looking at housing. Caroline Oliver, who is not here today, is looking at elderly social care. And we have... Uh, graduate assistant who holds everything together, and uh, Rachel Humphreys, and then finally we have a photographer, Simon Rowe, 
who's also working on the project. So the idea is that a collaborative approach in which we each look at articulations and productions of difference and diversity in different areas it has the potential to produce a richer, more layered account than anything possible by a single solo ethnographer. Okay, so a little bit on some of the debates and some of the work we've been uh, inspired by. Um, this includes Steve Vertovic's uh, work on superdiversity, that is the multiplication and diversification of axes of difference in urban areas, and the concurrent move away from multiculturalism, both in political discourse and scholarship, which um, some of us have uh, written about in a uh, in a book on, or in a soon-to-be-published book on uh, ethnography, diversity, and urban space. So, for me personally, I've worked on the Cuban diaspora for more than ten years and have been very inspired by literature on transnationalism and diaspora. But I've also felt uh, so a growing dissatisfaction with this literature, exactly because it doesn't really engage with the local in diasporic migrants' lives. Um, especially, it seems to me that the transnationalism literature seems to be preoccupied with transnational corridors that are poorly grounded in local contexts, either in the homelands or in the societies of settlement. And also it seems to gloss over connections and relations that are not co-ethnic and transnational. So for me, this was a way of looking at some of the same issues that I've done in my diaspora and transnational research, but starting from a, a place rather than from a group of people. Um, then we could also flip it around and say that some of the very accomplished studies of diversity in local neighbourhoods uh, could be criticised <coughs> for ignoring the transnational or the diasporic aspects of people's lives. So Gerd Bauman's otherwise uh, very admirable ethnography of Southall in London, Contesting Cultures, doesn't really engage with the connections that Southallians maintain beyond Southall, even when one would assume that such ties and connections would have existed and made themselves uh, felt during the course of his fieldwork. For example, he describes uh, Sikhs. Sikhs are uh, an important presence in South, Southall, and uh, his, his fieldwork took place during a period of time when there was intense conflict in the Punjab. So, um, but we, we don't hear anything at all about that in his work. Um, interestingly, if on the other <coughs> hand we read Brian Keith Axel's work on the Sikh diaspora, the nation's tortured body, Southall looks completely different to Bauman's uh, account of it, exactly because Axel focuses on the diasporic and Bauman on the local. And so we would like to think that the two can somehow be reconciled within our uh, ethnographic gaze. Uh, so that's the, that's the ambition, uh, at least. Um, now, the research field we're interested in uh, is made up of what we see as super diverse neighbourhoods in global cities, likely both hyperlocal and transnationally uh, distributed, and we would like to capture both. Um, so the challenge is uh, partly to define the ethnographic context here and working out how we pragmatically and practically work within it. Um, uh, so the, the very definition of what constitutes the context is, is quite a, a big question uh, for us. Um, so, um, so while building on uh, the recent growth in urban neighbourhood studies, the, uh, we're very keen to avoid a sort of an implicit return to holism. Um, we're also cognizant of 
uh, Les Back's observation of what he calls uh, the metropolitan paradox. That is, that in cities we can find intense conviviality side by side with intense exclusion. And we expect that this paradox is related to the contingency and shifting of which differences are made salient in which uh, contexts. So uh, against the background of wanting to balance the local with the transnational, we're interested in identifying sociality and shared spaces, uh, what Ash Amin has called micro-publics, space between residents, uh, among and between residents, and between residents and service providers. Um, um, Okay, and we're, we're particularly interested in the processes of translation taking place in these encounters and understanding translation here in a very, in the broadest possible sense to include the transmission, interpretation, transformation and sharing of languages, values, beliefs, histories and narratives, while also recognising that far from being an innocent term, it is an ideologically loaded process shaped by and further shaping relations uh, and uh, relations of power. So we ask how bureaucracies who plan and manage services for the area's population and the front line or street level bureaucrats uh, tasked with delivering them frame, how do they frame and narrate their user communities and how do they perform their own identities? Are diverse forms of knowledge brought from the elsewheres to which residents are connected, reconfiguring service delivery? And what are the ethical challenges of such cultural translation for street-level bureaucrats? Um, So the kind of work we're doing uh, represents challenges for ethnographers, which are, we believe, related to the history of anthropology and ethnographic fieldwork, mainly developed in small-scale contexts. Um, And although many anthropologists today are carrying out single or multi-sided research in urban transnational contexts, this pastoral imaginary seems to uh, still hold, have quite a strong hold on the ethnographic um, imagination. Um, and so we've, it's, it's a little bit puzzling, we find, because um, previous ethnographers, notably those of the Manchester School, grappled with the move from rural to urban field work and, and also addressed the, um, the adequacy of the conceptual tools um, for doing urban uh, research uh, so there is a history of, of uh, ethnography and of anthropologists grappling with these issues, but it seems that the, the, sort of the dominant uh, fieldwork imaginary is still very much the, the uh, pastoral agrarian um, uh, one. So. Okay, so. Uh, so for me, at least personally, as an uh, sort of anthropologist through and through, I've always had a sense of falling short of these... Um, ideals um, so it's um, anyway it's, it's um, sort of an interesting dialogue we are, we're having with uh, the discipline uh, here and we've been very inspired as well by um, so both by this early urban work but also the work of uh, Sandra Woolman who uh, was actually grappling with some of these issues uh, more than uh, 30 years ago um, in which she, is, she's, she, uh, she argued in her book on uh, London that in the popular image, social anthropology is a technique of inquiry, nothing more. By this logic, its means are equated with its, with its ends, its method, uh, method with its methodology. If it's not possible to do participant observation, 
which in the traditional paradigm requires year-round isolation from one's own ordinary life and clock-round immersion in the ordinary lives of others, it's not possible to do social anthropology. In these terms, it's difficult to work as a social anthropologist in any town and impossible in your own. So what are we to do then? And um, Wallman then uh, continues to argue that these are not the right terms. The proper criterion of the craft is in the perspectives we bring to the analyses we attempt, not in the deceptively simple act of hanging in. Participant observation is a means to understanding social life in the round, to the appreciation of context and meaning, and to the relational perspective, all of which are distinguishing marks of social anthropology. Leach has put it more elegantly. The typically anthropological assumption is that a social field does not consist of units of populations, uh, but of persons in relation to one another. And so we're following uh, Wallman's uh, lead here. So I'll hand over to Ben. So I'm going to um, say a little bit more about uh, what we what we are trying to do, and a little bit more about the location, and then we'll say something about what we're finding out. Um, so as Met has been talking about, we've taken an approach, a collaborative approach, and I guess um, one thing that's important to say is that we've had very different routes into the project, and so Met has spoken about her route um, via uh, the Cuban diaspora. And similarly, Caroline Oliver, I guess, is, uh, comes from a migration studies background. Her work was on British retirement migrants in Spain. And so I guess in Meta and Caroline's case, there's a kind of a repatriation of migration studies. Um, whereas my direction of travel has been pretty much the opposite, that I've worked in South London um, as a kind of urban, urban studies person working in this area um, and other nearby neighbourhoods for about 15 years um, and kind of coming to diversity and migration via the, um, the fact of diversity in, in, in that part of inner London rather than via kind of migration studies. Um, and so our collaborative work uh, also involves working with a photographer. I should say that none of these photographs in this uh, slideshow apart from the very last one are by Simon, these are all our, taken on our phones um, but we will, um, through the project we're having we're kind of intensive uh, periods with Simon who's a photographer who's worked in the area um, relating to each of the different strands of the research and the idea is if we can build this from this project to a longer term research project that we will then use uh, fight with kind of experimenting with ways of building in photography now but that will build that in more thoroughly later, including allowing or finding ways of getting residents and welfare users in the area to document their own lives. And so these visual methods, interviews with welfare service providers, um, possibly uh, household interviews with residents and uh, participant observation in different spaces of welfare encounter, um, will between them build up a layered account of the area that somehow manages to um, reflect some of the different perspectives, some of the different forms of diversity that characterise um, the neighbourhood. We know that that's a kind of um, an impossible, that the, the full uh, range of perspectives in such kind of complicated places I'll talk about in a second uh, is kind of impossible, but we believe that um, a kind of a collaborative approach is um, maybe a way of uh, failing better rather than um, 
failing worse. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, to return again to uh, to the area, Elephant Castle, um, as Metro said, it's not its own administrative unit. So this is the borough of Southwark. That's London, that's the borough of Southwark. And Southwark is made up of um, wards and community council areas. And um, Elephant and Castle is an, is an area that sits on the border of five different council wards, um, none of which um, is coterminous with an area that people would call Elephant and Castle. So what we've done is we've simply drawn a circle with the shopping centre and the roundabout at its centre and taken a kind of one-mile radius around it. Um, <coughs> and so Elephant is not a neighbourhood. Um, it's not a place uh, that people would have a kind of place-based identity attached to. It's, as Matt said, it's a traffic junction. It's a space of, it's an intersection, a space of flows and encounters. And in particular, it's a, it's a shopping centre. Um, it's a shopping centre which has several remittance shops, several um, Latin American, there's one whole Latin American section, it's got Polish restaurant, it's uh, almost all of the um, retail outlets are independent, apart from, I think there's one TSB bank and one Iceland, the only national chains, everything else is independent, and almost everything is owned and operated by people, by migrants or people of migrant background. Um, however, the, the ethnic diversity and the migration-based diversity is only one aspect of the diversity of the area. <clears throat> I think when Steve Vertevec first used the term superdiversity, he, um, he stressed that he wasn't talking about heightened ethnic diversity, he was talking about the multiplication of axes of difference. And so ethnic diversity is only one of those axes of difference. However, I think... Um, not, um, I think many people working with diversity, urban diversity, including the concept of superdiversity, <coughs> and we're probably kind of guilty of this because of our background in migration studies, often focus particularly on, on issues of ethnic diversity. But what we want to stress is that diversity also means diversity of income, diversity of levels of poverty. Um, so I won't go through all the Statistics, but around a third of um, households in Elephant and Castle are among the most uh, most deprived in in Southwark. Southwark is one of the most deprived places in London, and Elephant and Castle is one of the most deprived places within Southwark. Um, uh, uh, there's. Uh, um, it's a, it's the index of multiple deprivation is the kind of standard measure of, of poverty in lots of different domains. Um, Elephant and Castle is kind of uh, among the most most deprived in London. Owner occupiers are a, are a minority of households in the area. Most uh, people are social tenants, so they live in council housing or other forms of social housing. Sixty percent. Um, and then there's a large number of people living in private rented accommodation. And the kind of difference between of different forms of housing tenure is probably one of the most significant forms of difference locally. People that live in, in council properties versus people that live in private properties. And there's been a slight decline in the kind of uh, level of deprivation in the past few years, which is partly linked to a regeneration campaign led by the local authority, which is led to a decrease in the number of households as council properties, uh, council 
buildings have been closed down and emptied out and their residents moved to decanted as the uh, technical term to other parts of um, London and even beyond London so there's one big council estate called Haygate people talk about the Haygate diaspora as it's been emptied out over quite a long period of time um, including many residents residents who were eventually evicted because they refused to leave and um, private owner-occupied and rent, private rented housing has been built instead. So there's been a decrease in deprivation, not because people have gotten richer, but because poor people have been um, evacuated. Um, I won't go through all of these, but there's um, also diversity in terms of the types of work people do, the type of skills people have. Um, among, among the most highly qualified people in London, among the least qualified people in London, very high levels of, of poor health, particularly among social housing tenants, and very high levels of um, disability. So I think disability is another key axis, axis of difference in a super diverse location. In terms of ethnicity, um, there are challenges to kind of mapping the population because of the because of the micro-local scale and because the, our field site sits on the border of administrative areas. But we do know that only a third of the population um, count, uh, describe themselves as white British in the census. And what's particularly significant for us and why Elephant is a very good kind of field site for looking at super diversity is there isn't one single other group that predominates. So it's not an area where there's a white British population and, say, um, a Sikh population, as in Southall, but rather that there's many, many other communities. So black African, black Caribbean um, is the second largest group, and white other, um, the third largest group. But you'll see it's kind of a whole patchwork of different groups. And these census categories, of course, are very crude. Um, so Latin Americans, who are a very visible population in the area, don't show up in the census categories because there isn't a Latin American census category in Britain. In terms of migration and language and place of birth, a similar picture. Um, so nearly half the population is born abroad. Um, two in six people don't have English as their first language and as with ethnicity there isn't a single other language but a whole range of other languages. So this is from uh, census uh, super output areas. So this is the super output area around the shopping centre. So this is the uh, super output area is the smallest level in the census, and this is the super output area that's completely inside our field site. So this is um, so the adjacent areas are slightly different, but um, so there's a super output area with like a, a number um, SO something rather, um, which makes up about uh, three quarters of the area that full that is our circle. So that's a very important point um, that uh, because because of the way the administrative boundaries fall, we can't get a kind of an accurate picture. So, so along with mapping diversity, we've also tried to map services. Um, and what's really interesting is that the most local services to Elephant and Castle are generally services aimed at kind of whole populations regardless of their kind of ethnicity and so on, whereas services aiming at particular ethnic groups tend to be located further away. So there's a kind of geography of, of welfare in which people uh, of all sorts of backgrounds access location-based services, and then people travel for uh, kind of identity-based services. People move in and out of the area 
a very high population turnover. Um, and so kind of uh, there's always a gap between the, the kind of population and who's served by particular welfare services. Okay, so the um, work that we've done uh, falls, we've, there's four main researchers on this project and each of the four of us has taken a particular area of welfare which we've mapped onto the, the life course. So um, Haranthi is going to talk about maternity services in a second and through the life course Meta is working on schools, I'm working on residents and Caroline is working on elder care. So Haranthi, do you want to um, i just say a, a couple of sentences about um, how my academic background sort of fits into this part of the project. Uh, uh, unlike Meta, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm, um, I've got a background in sociology. My field was in sociology and not in urban sociology, but more to do with the intersection between class, um, gender, um, and race and ethnicity, um, particularly with relevance to uh, reference to um, African-Caribbean women who came over from, uh, from Jamaica mainly to, to Oxford. Um, but I've been working around um, the health, health of migrants is my kind of key uh, interest uh, in, in sort of migration-related research. And before I came to Compass, I was working in a um, perinatal unit in part of the health sciences in, 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 in Oxford, the, the All Road campus, um, looking at... Um, um, so pregnant women and um, uh, sort of, uh, women with small babies and their, uh, particularly who are low income and their access to services and their experience around childbirth. So that is where I think this interest comes um, um, with the interest in maternity services uh, comes from. Um, so anyway, the, um, at this life cycle stage, uh, there is obviously uh, increased service needs particularly, and it creates um, challenges to the interface between sort of diversity and, 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 and service provision. Um, so first of all, the, um, in, in Sadak, 60% um, of births were to non-UK born women in 2012. Um, the highest proportion was to uh, among women born in Africa, and as Ben said, there's a lot of uh, diversity and um, uh, migrants from uh, the Af um, African continent, um, all parts of it, I suppose, but uh, it's very difficult to say from the census data, um, are sort of uh, quite represented in, in, in Southwark and parts of Southwark. Um, but um, it's, uh, the 60% it seems very high, but it's not as high as um, other London boroughs like Newham and Brent, which have uh, over 70%. But uh, is quite high for um, uh, is, is still quite high in, compared to England as a whole, which which was around 27 percent of births were to non-UK-born women in, in England as a whole. But I think it's important to be aware that the composition of, of migrant women um, might be different in Southwark than in other boroughs with high percentages of births to non-UK-born women, because Southwark has a particular kind of demographic. Um, sort of context, so more recent arrivals, more, um, more deprived, um, and more challenges in accessing services, um, which comes out from, from the fieldwork that um, we're starting to do. Uh, and that's also interesting because it's not just about ethnicity and uh, migration, but about the socioeconomic deprivation as well, and how they all you know, combine um, in, in creating this, this particular situation. Um, so the, the kinds of, um, sort of issues that are, I think, quite important in uh, looking at um, access to maternity services, the, the, one, one of the significant um, issues at the moment is uh, sort of changes to entitlement, 
two uh, maternity services um, as part of the new Immigration Act, which has just um, sort of been you know, gone through Parliament. Um, there are changes to the, the sort of criteria on which you can get free access to um, health um, services. And so that permanent residence has become now the new qualifying criteria for um, free NHS treatment. So all new uh, non-EEA migrants, even those who want to, you know, who are joining family uh, citizens, um, sort of as family members joining uh, British citizens, um, and have long-term plans to live in the UK, uh, will not be able to get access to um, free uh, NHS care, including maternity services, uh, before they pay uh, this health surcharge uh, at the point of entry or at the point of applying for a visa. So there are lots of negative implications of this for um, access in maternity services, particularly for women whose immigration status and circumstances may not fall into neat categories and so who may be denied access um, uh, to care. And here's something that's um, uh, of concern to uh, statutory health care providers as well as the voluntary sector, and there's a lot of uh, sort of discussion around this issue. Um, there were the Department of Health and the Home Office had consultations and pregnant on this, on this new um, sort of immigration um, sort of act um, provision. And um, the pregnant women were highlighted as a group needing special consideration for free health care. But the government had this view that um, access to maternity services can be linked with health tourism, where people come to uh, give birth in this country. So they haven't. Um, uh, so under the new rules, pregnant women are not exempt from charging. Um, there's also an expectation that as part of these new rules, that accident and emergency treatment would also eventually become chargeable for some uh, groups of people, those who are considered illegal and those who are visitors with less than six months in the UK. Um, so there's a lot of kind of, you know, at the moment things are changing a lot in a, in a negative way for um, accessing maternity services. And um, an interview I had with a, a third sector organization um, suggested that there's a huge need for education and training of service providers like midwives and health visitors to get around the the complexity of the circumstances and the entitlement of different categories of maternity service users uh, to get the care they need. Uh, and uh, this, it was highlighted that in a very diverse area like Elephant and Castle, this was a, a major, major issue. And a, a slightly broader issue in that is also access to maternity benefits because the benefit system is changing as well. Um, and that women may not know what they're entitled to and not knowing how to claim. So those are all the sort of problems that uh, are coming up with the, the, um, the um, sort of inter interactions between service providers and, and, uh, and, and pregnant women. And of course the consequences at this life cycle stage are, are huge of, of you know, not getting access to the care they need and, and having barriers to access. So pregnancy complications uh, which can impact on both mothers and babies, um, the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths highlighted that uh, no access to uh, antenatal care or late access um, have been underlying high death rates among uh, the more vulnerable women, including asylum seekers and women with uh, irregular status. Uh, but it's also important to understand that, um, that this intersection between uh, sort of with beliefs and expectations, that, that, you know, that this kind of the, the, the problems here intersect with beliefs and expectations that women bring from countries of origin as well both in relation to sort of pregnancy behavior and what they expect at this time when they're pregnant and the interaction with service providers. So in um, this a particular interview I had um, with the service provider said that some of the women 
don't necessarily have the same uh, interaction with service providers where, where they come from then when they come here so that creates sort of problems as well or could could be uh, could you know could sort of be negative in terms of the outcomes um, and then the other thing that is I think that's really important uh, in terms of challenges to service provision is the uh, uh, changes in the NHS structure that's happening now particularly the the, the focus on the more the, the shift to local commissioning and there is some um, sense that sometimes the local commissioners don't really recognize the needs of uh, more vulnerable women um, and may not be able to provide those services and this is happening in you know at the same time that there are cuts to uh, services provided by both uh, statutory and voluntary organizations some charities are shutting down in Southwark in that area um, smaller charities and the community organizations uh, don't exist anymore which serve the needs of particular um, sort of groups of, of women and that could have a negative impa impact as well um, so as um, has been said uh, we just you know we're still in the process of doing field work and um, in terms of getting access to talking to service providers in maternity services was the hardest because it, we had to go through this complicated ethics uh, approval procedure, but we passed that, and we got uh, approval from uh, Guys and St Thomas Hospital to uh, to do this, uh, to talk to uh, healthcare providers, and so that's um, really the sort of next step that we are going to move on to. The next one, yeah. housing. Uh, schooling, yeah. So I'll just quickly go through. As you can see, I put some of the characteristics of schools in the area. Uh, really, some. Uh, uh, huge challenges faced by uh, teachers uh, in terms of diversity of their pupils, super high turnover, uh, many different languages. Some schools have more than 50 languages spoken inside them, um, and uh, in some schools up to 90% of children have English as an additional language. Um, entitlement to free school meals is very high, up to 92% in some of the schools, uh, suggesting very high levels of deprivation among uh, the children. Um, so, so, uh, yeah, very uh, big challenges uh, uh, in the in the schools um, so far. So, I've, it's been extremely difficult uh, on top to to gain uh, access. We've really had some uh, doing doing fieldwork in these uh, <coughs> spaces of bureaucracy and, and welfare encounters. Really not easy, and and they are also under huge pressure because of uh, re constant restructuring and extremely complex uh, governance and, and financial uh, structures. Um, so, so some of the questions I, I've. I'm still juggling or sort of struggling with this, whether should I try and get more inside the schools and do, try and do ethnography inside the schools, or should I stay at the school gates uh, and try and, and uh, gain, sort of work more with, with the families. Uh, I'm becoming more and more interested in the street-level bureaucrats themselves and their diversities and how they perceive and manage uh, differences and, and uh, diversities. Um, Working ethnographically, I, realistically, I could only work with one or two schools, and, and the schools are so extremely different among, between and among themselves as well, so I'm also worried of how representative or unrepresentative will it be, how do I choose which schools, and I, I may not have much of a choice anyway because it's so difficult to gain access, so I might just have to jump at any opportunity I, I, I get. Um, um, so one, uh, uh, so one little, a very telling vignette um, 
uh, just very quickly, I was in, in one school uh, in, in the area um, some months ago and talked to the head teacher and their um, inclusion manager, so one of, one of the teachers with a particular responsibility for this area. This is a school that has about 50% African children. And um, what I was really struck by, both in talking with, with schools, uh, this school in particular, but also with third sector organisations, is that they don't see the diversity of the different languages, the immigration as an issue at all. That's just something they work with. That's just how things are. What they do see as an issue is deprivation and uh, increasing levels of poverty uh, and, and the uh, sort of restrictions on access that Hiranthi also uh, talked to. Um, head teacher very uh, saying how, well, on, uh, telling me how on the statistics, our school doesn't look so bad, but actually in terms of uh, deprivation and poverty, but actually there's this whole level of uh, group of children whose parents don't have access to or recourse to public funds, and so therefore the children don't even count in the statistics. So, uh, so, so these statistics don't even really give us the full uh, picture. Um, and then, uh, interestingly, one, uh, the inclusion manager talking about how they had had so in their uh, work had had problems with one particular girl of, of African origin, lots of behavioural uh, problems, and he'd been talking to her and how she had, at one point in a conversation with him, had turned around and said, oh, but I'm the only African child in this school. And he had been astonished. This is a 50% sort of African uh, 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 school. And, and then the girl saying, oh, but I, it, turn, it turning out in the end that what the girl was referring to was that she was the only one who had um, scars, facial scars, and so that was what she counted as, as African, which I think was just a, a really, really nice insight into how this, the differences that make a difference that can be really uh, surprising and uh, how uh, we, we have to be very open um, on that. So I won't say any more. We're running vastly over time. Yeah. Um, okay, the, uh, so the penultimate uh, of our four case studies, housing, which is, I've been working on, and I guess there's a long tradition in um, urban ethnography of the estate, the council estate, as a kind of iconic ethnographic field site, and then maybe this is the area where there's the most risk of reproducing that kind of pastoral model that um, Meta was talking about, the kind of village model. And so the challenge for us has been thinking of housing not as a just as a site of residence, but also as a as a welfare space as a site of encounter between uh, residents and the state, the local state. Um, I've already mentioned the issues around regeneration, gentrification and um, decanting and displacement and it seems to us that possibly this differences of tenure might be the kind of key difference that makes a difference. Um, I won't say anything more because we're moving on. So, uh, do you want to uh, yeah. ventriloquize Caroline's yeah. um, final? Yes, I think um, Ben has introduced um, Caroline already. She's worked in this area of retirement migration for, for a long time. Um, so, just to say a little bit about the national context, um, it's uh, the context of an aging population, obviously. It's predicted that the number of people in the UK over the age of 65 will rise by almost 40% in the next 25 years. Um, Healthcare is increasingly directed towards um, long-term health conditions, um, the, and it's anticipated that spending on adult social care will place huge burdens on um, social services, and there'll be a decreased expenditure by local authorities on social care, um, and there'll be a shift to a market, or there is a shift to market provision, uh, and then also the um, that um, care work is regularly carried out by migrant workers. So that's the national context. 
in the, the local context, the um, Elfenland Council context, um, is that uh, generally the, um, the, nine, the very small uh, percentage of uh, the Sadat population are over, uh, is over, 20, over 65, about 9%, uh, but it's projected to increase by another um, sort of 11,000 by 2033 and to diversify. Uh, the majority um, are white, um, about 80, 80, over 80%. Uh, the director of adult social care uh, said that there's, um, uh, that there's a feeling that there's a um, fragmentation of the, of the community. Um, and as in the national picture, uh, there's, there's a shift towards dealing with long-term health conditions. Um, and the social care services are focusing on early interventions to empower people to remain in their homes. Um, it's uh, as you know, we saw from the, uh, from the, from the picture, the, the demographic picture, that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, poverty, um, and um, especially fewer, fewer poverty and rising cost of living, and also there's higher sort of extent of um, higher than average extent of living uh, alone. So there are issues of loneliness and the, and, and the need for um, social support. Um, the actual care work uh, context in the, in the local area. Um, there's a, a, a sort of residential care and home care. There's a mix between white working class women and migrant care workers in the sector. Um, and a lot of workers do not necessarily live in the borough. Uh, residential services are privately run. Um, and um, the voluntary sector, the, the Southwark uh, Pensioner Center that uh, Caroline uh, did ethnography free work there uh, is quite diverse. Um, there are people from all walks of life. There's uh, uh, people, uh, the, uh, white people who are fairly um, affluent and to um, and who be, you know, obviously born and uh, uh, living in that area for a long time, and newer migrants um, from a nearby estate. Um, it's interesting, she says, to see whether uh, sort of the shared experience of aging uh, would overcome some of these differences. Um, and so the kinds of issues that she wants to investigate further is exploring the sense of. Uh, marginalization and vulnerability and how related or not related to diversity um, or is it sort of because are do people who have been born there and lived there for a long uh, all their lives um, are more vulnerable because of the ch change in diversity or is it other factors um, then she wants to explore care encounters across diverse ethnic groups um, experiences of uh, migrant care workers um, and the white receiving population um, social capital within voluntary groups and the diversity within voluntary groups. Uh, and then there's this overlapping interest uh, around uh, housing with uh, Ben, uh, of uh, housing experiences from an um, aging uh, perspective given uh, reliance on rented accommodation. Um, so some of the things that she wants to explore when she comes back from maternity leave. Okay, this is our <coughs> final slide. I just, I've, I guess uh, six, six conclusions and six questions that are outstanding. The, in terms of the, the things we're finding out, I guess the first one is we were entered this space thinking of it in terms of uh, rapid churn of population, but what became clear to us is rapid or fluidity or rapid churn in the structures of the state were as significant. Well, welfare restructuring that um, Haranthi's spoken about and meta in relation to schools changing the, the border of the state um, for people. Secondly, that I guess again when we started out thinking of ethnicity as the kind of main sort of axis of difference that would be significant it seems that deprivation and poverty is is at least as significant 
third um, something that's come across to us very strongly is that the face of the local state for residents is diverse as well, but not in a way that mirrors the diversity in the population. So the kind of migration backgrounds of frontline uh, street-level bureaucrats is kind of almost as great as that in the population. The rapid churn in the population, um, kind of new communities arriving very rapidly, means that uh, service provision is always outpaced by population change, which always means that there are groups who are not reached or left behind, and that's particularly the case when in the context of welfare restructuring. Um, I guess uh, something around life course approach and the kind of value of taking this life course approach of seeing that diversity is experienced differently for different age groups and so I think that hopefully came out across came across in the contrast for example between the picture of maternity services and older people's services um, and then finally I guess one of the final conclusions around access issues bureaucratic complexity it's very uh, the, doing the research was much more difficult because of all of these issues around welfare restructuring and um, the kind of ethical, not just the ethical challenges, but the kind of ethical hoops we had to go through to get permission to do the research. There are some questions which remain kind of unanswered for us, which are the focus of our coming research, which is around this looking for the spaces of conviviality and how they map onto public and private distinction and the way in which interaction in one space of welfare encounter doesn't necessarily transfer into other parts of life. So when people get on together in one space, it doesn't mean they get on together in other spaces. And related to this, like the contrast between um, kind of meaningful contact, cu curious conviviality, intercultural interaction on the one hand versus a kind of separate together people choreographing their movements around difference as um, Alan Cochran puts it that civil inattention to difference like just not paying any attention to difference and these kind of two modes of living with difference and it seems that the latter is much more predominant here rather than some kind of rich conviviality Super diversity or um, super inequality I guess is the, is the super diversity paradigm kind of not sufficiently attentive to issues around inequality. Um, fourthly, the role of street-level bureaucrats, the discretion that they have over what they do, um, presenting them with kind of ethical challenges and making their, their sort of personhood a kind of key site for encounter and translation across difference. Um, and then I guess two final ones. One is around the issues that Meta raised at the beginning about is it possible to do, to, or we've been focusing very much on the local, um, is it possible to attend to the transnational issues that we raised at the beginning at the same time? And that's something we've perhaps been able to do less successfully so far. And then our final question, uh, which remains open, which again Meta introduced at the beginning, is whether or not we can think of this space as a site for the emergence of a vernacular culture of translation, in particular of the welfare sites um, where all sorts of forms of translation occur. So that's, so apologies for going on too long. I want to start with this uh, image, uh, which uh, I took in Lisbon um, when I was doing field work in this neighborhood in, uh, outside of uh, the center of Lisbon, where there's been a lot of conflicts, uh, ethnic conflicts or uh, drug-related conflicts, which, which are entangled with, with racial and, and, and ethnic issues. And then at some point, uh, someone had written these todos juntos, which means in Portuguese, all together. And then, of course, the image of uh, this person, who is not exactly 
a white in the sense of a Portuguese. It's, it, 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 it's meant to portray a Roma, a Cigano, as they say, a gypsy, if you want. Uh, and this is a Cape Verdean, and they were two groups that had been fighting uh, once. And um, the reason why I bring this image is because um, by uh, when I try to analyze what happened in, in, in 2010, the conflict and, and the way that the conflict was uh, eventually more or less resoluted, uh, this concept of togetherness uh, was something that, that really uh, struck my ethnographic imagination. And I look for uh, models, I look for places where to study togetherness, and it's not that obvious. I mean, of course, we, we all know the works of Victor Turner and, and, and now Edith Turner and communities, but it's not quite the same. Uh, togetherness and I mean communities, and I think that the very last uh, image that we've been discussing this this distinction between meaningful contact and uh, what was the other category? Sorry, uh, separate and separate togetherness. That's that's, that's a fantastic uh, way to to think about about this about these issues. Um, and, and and the paper today, I think that one of the things that did to me was help me uh, through the concept of togetherness, which in this case is not an analytical. Uh, a tool. It's actually an emic concept. I mean, this is young kids in, in Quinta da Fonte writing all together. We have to live all together. Now, how to live all together is something that uh, I was taught, not in, well, in this place as well, but before I did my fieldwork in, in, and in parallel in many ways in Lisbon, I had done fieldwork in Africa. And in Africa, in rural Africa, you know, in the middle of uh, 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 Guinea-Bissau, in very remote uh, villages, in all the senses of the concept of remoteness, I met this man, a prophet, who had made this drawing, which I'm going to show you in more detail. And in this drawing, he had written uh, in his own alphabet, which is something as I was talking about last week, the invention of prophetic alphabet, he had written Sufri Unidadi, which in Portuguese, sorry, in Creole, but uh, almost in Portuguese as well, it means suffer unit, unity. Suffer in the meaning of enduring. And what he was trying to say, when I discussed it with him and with other people, is that unity is not taken for granted. Unity is something you have to fight for. Unit means um, many different elements, many different perspectives on one single thing, which is the community, if you want, or the village, uh, people looking at it from, from different religions, from different ethnic groups, and also from different values. I mean, the plurality that we're talking about, uh, and, and, and of course Ben said it's not just ethnic diversity, it's diversity of all sorts of things. I think that one of the elements we should also bring into the picture is the diversity of uh, values. And I think that the anthropology uh, of values, which is now re-emerging thanks to the work of people like uh, Joel Robbins, etc., uh, will, will, will be quite useful to, to that. But I'm bringing this image here, not only because it helps me uh, to feed back onto my previous image that uh, unity, togetherness, must be uh, uh, accompanied or is often accompanied by suffering. I mean, you're something you have to suffer. I mean, it's not, it's not something that necessarily means communities and, 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 and being all hippie and happy. Uh, but the, the other reason why I bring it is not only because of the feedback between the two images as well as with the material we've seen in this wonderful presentation, but it's also uh, that this was in, very, in a very, very rural area. And this is another feedback that I find fascinating between this material that we've been listening today and my own fieldwork in, in Africa. I think that there is a tendency in anthropology today uh, to assume, some kind of a critic, uh, critically assume, 
that super diversity or high diversity and complexity is kind of an outcome of something of modernity, of globalization, of migration, and that it only happens or it happens mostly in urban centers, whether it is in India or in New York or in London or in uh, Lisbon. Now, uh, you go to West Africa, to where I've been doing fieldwork, and you will find in one single village of less than 3,000 people, eight different languages, four different religions, and people with many different outlooks and perspectives and memories and expectations. And this diversity in the local level of the African societies, and I'm speaking as an Africanist here, has been studied by anthropologists. I mean, there's been work on, on diversity in rural areas by people like Leo Cooper and other uh, N.G. Smith and, and, and all that school of, of, of the study of plural societies, which, which in fact are continuing debates started by Radcliffe Brown and Malinowski in South Africa. And I think that, that, that there is a very interesting feedback, or there should be a very interesting feedback between the kind of uh, ethnographic fieldwork that uh, people like Ben, uh, Hiranthi, or Mete are doing, and, and Caroline are doing in, 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 in places like London, and the more, say, classic fieldwork like people uh, that, that people like, like, like the ones I've mentioned or uh, their continuators today are doing in, in rural places of West Africa. We have to stop thinking that plurality is something that belongs to the urban, uh, modern, civilized, uh, westernized uh, world. Uh, uh, plurality must be an a priori of uh, many communities, and it has been so for, for, for many centuries. So this is something I wanted to, to, uh, to say, just these different feedbacks that uh, link uh, notions uh, of uh, fieldwork and of anthropology and of diversity in more classic models <coughs> of anthropology and in these more, uh, let's say, uh, up-to-date current uh, models of um, ethnography. I mean, I, I've just saw a book that Hiranti had in her hands about the relevance of the ethnographic method in, 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 in the world of today. And I think that, that by, by going back, as uh, Mete was uh, suggesting to people like Malinowski, we can still learn how to do uh, fieldwork in, in places like London and vice versa by doing this fieldwork and breathing we can, we can then feed back onto more uh, say traditional if you want or so called traditional settings in, in anthropology. Now uh, Mete was uh, talk, um, talking in the, at the very beginning of, 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 of her, of her uh, talk and of their talk uh, how do we live with um, difference? I think that this is a, a question that um, is or should be asked by, by, by all of us, uh, by people doing fieldwork in urban centers like Elephant and Castle, this, this, this junction, which, I mean, in fact, it's, it's funny that when, when I saw that image of the junction uh, of, of, of trains, I immediately thought about these images mm -hmm. of, of different junctions of perspective in a, in a West African village. So, I mean, people are, are thinking the way their world is connected and ultra-connected and connected to other worlds uh, in, in any place of the world. I mean, it's probably one of the common denominators of us humans thinking about what is the world in which we live and how is it connected to other worlds in which other people may live. And as Meta says, our world is characterized by all these junctions. And when she says our world, I suppose she's talking about London, Oxford, but also a small village in Guinea-Bissau. So uh, I think that the, the talk of today uh, has been very, very good to think and rethink what do we mean when we are talking about the world. Thank you. <laughs>